Well, the time that I had with my sons in the last uh, week and a half or so was absolutely wonderful. It was a great blessing. And uh, I got to see my grandson. Some of you got to see my grandson uh, last Sunday as well. Um, my impression is that he's the smartest, best-looking, cutest little boy that I've ever seen in my life. He takes exactly. He takes after his grandfather in excessive ways. Um, he's, did you notice the amount of hair that kid has, though? It is not the same as his grandfather. We really did have a great time. Uh, I'll share some more about that in just a moment here, but it was uh, just a wonderful time. Well, during the last week, in addition to that, I had a chance to uh, look at some news items, and, and maybe you saw this one as well. This comes out of Vancouver. Dozens of children, mostly aboriginals, formed a suicide pact in a downtown Vancouver community earlier this year that prompted police to step in and have some of them hospitalized for their own safety. Other children blacked out from heavy drinking and participated in acts of self-harm over several months this year, according to a document obtained by the Canadian press. While residents and professionals were able to respond to the crises between the spring and autumn, so it sounds to me like it happened mainly over summer, a community group is now calling for a major shift in how services are funded and delivered by the provincial government. And the story goes on to talk about how there were 30 teenagers between the ages of 12 and 15 who got together over the social network and made a suicide pact. 30 of them. And because it was out there, because it was public, other people were able to see it and they were able to kind of head it off. And the police intervened and they actually, they were able to take 24 of these kids and they picked them up and took them to mental health facilities. And I'm assuming some of them might even still be there, but they just put them on suicide watch, uh, watched them for a while because of this suicide pact that these kids had arranged. Now, I don't know about you, but, uh, well, I probably do know about you. I find it incredibly disturbing to think that we could have such a large number of kids who would decide that they are all going to kill themselves together. Now, it's interesting. I, I told the same story, of course, in the first service today. And when I finished, I had two nurses from hospitals here in town who came up to me afterwards and said, that's maybe unusual for a suicide pact. Not at all unusual to have that many on a daily basis come through the hospitals here in Calgary of teenagers who have attempted to take their lives. And that, folks, is tragic. Now, what's interesting to me, and this is alarming as well, I think, but it's alarming from a Christian perspective, I think, more than anything else. Listen, listen to some of the language that's reported in this article. It says, A community group is now calling for a major shift in how services are funded and delivered by the provincial government. Um, and, and what they were doing is there, there was questions about how the government had responded to this crisis. 
a, a police, I don't know if this is the police chief or what, his name is Fincham. It says, Fincham said officers intervened and got, got the use the help that they needed. Like, I find that an interesting line. Like, I don't know exactly what help they thought they needed, but the officers intervened and got the use, the help that they needed. Like, is he serious? He thinks that because they picked them all up and took them to a mental health facility, they got the help that they needed? Is that somehow going to fix the problem? While the crisis drew a response from youth and social workers, police and medical officials, the report says gaps in the system became apparent. The system has not provided an adequate preventative long-term response to children and families living in the community and their day-to-day realities, says the report. These children and youth need positive relationship-based connections to family, peers, and workers to help them both navigate these systems and have positive, healthy outcomes. Well, they're right. All of this is quite understated. Uh, The problem, of course, is that the things that they would like to fix by pouring more money into the services, the social structures that we have, are, I'm afraid, not going to touch the problem. It's too big. And it's of a completely different kind of nature. Because the bottom line is, is that we have families that are in crisis. I was talking to somebody earlier today. I said, you know, the problem is, is that you have a family that's a little bit dysfunctional. And so the child ends up being just that much more dysfunctional. And then it perpetuates itself. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. And we're like on this train headed down a track toward an abyss in our world. And and we might, at this point, hear that there were 30 teenagers that had agreed that they were going to take their lives together, and we think, oh, this is awful. And I just think, wait a hundred years. Wait a hundred years. What is it going to be like in a hundred years? What were the people thinking 200 years ago today would be like? I'll bet they didn't have a clue. And so we find that things are, in one sense, kind of spinning out of control. And one of the big problems, of course, is that we're not really listening to the problem. Like I asked the question in the first service, how how many of you heard that news report about the 30 teens in Vancouver who had agreed to this suicide pact? Anybody else see that besides me? A few? Three or four? It was kind of the same in the first service. Well, you know, tomorrow, that's just yesterday's news. Next week, you won't be thinking about it. It probably won't cross your mind at all three weeks from now. And that's because we are kind of numb to the things that are told us about where we're going and who we are and what the problems are. That's the way human beings are. We actually don't listen all that well. And so we hear that the problems are there, but it's kind of like in one ear and out the other. And we just don't pay attention, even to the things that are really, really serious. And so our society faces some really huge problems, and we're not dealing with them very effectively. 
but it's hard for us to listen and to make the changes. Now that doesn't surprise me completely because of the way that human beings have forever been responding to things. Like, for example, we're going to be looking at the Exodus here. You think about Pharaoh listening to God as God says, let my people go. And first of all, Moses comes and he's got a staff and he throws it out there and it turns into a snake. Now, personally, I'd be impressed. If you took a stick out there and all of a sudden I watched and it became a snake, I would think something significant is going on. But Pharaoh had some magicians. They could do the same thing. Wasn't that big a deal. And so he doesn't listen very well. Then Moses turns the Nile into blood. And the fish die and it stinks horribly. And if it was me, if I had watched the mighty Nile turn into blood, I'd be thinking, wow, I need to pay attention here. Pharaoh pays attention for a moment. And then, nah, I don't think I'm going to let them go. And so there's a plague of frogs, there's a plague of gnats, a plague of flies. All the animals are killed by God. There is a plague of boils, a plague of hail, a plague of locusts, a plague of darkness. Like you'd think that eventually Pharaoh is going to clue in here that something is going on. He needs to pay attention. And he does, again, for moments. And we're kind of like this. You know, we, oh, 30 teenagers, they decided that they were going to kill themselves. Well, that's significant. I need to be thinking about this. But it's only in our minds, really, for a moment. And with Pharaoh, in this case, it only crosses his mind for a bit that he should let these people go. Ultimately, he wants to keep slaves. He doesn't want them to go. He likes this slave labor. And so it's going to take more than this. And so finally, the 10th plague comes. The Passover. You know what it is. The children, the firstborn of all Egypt are killed by God. I, I didn't do this in the first service, but I'm, I'll do it now. This is... I, kind of tempted should i do this or not but let me do this i'd like for all the firstborn children in your families to stand up this morning if you're the oldest child in your family stand up me too thank you it's a significant number if all of a sudden something happened to all of the firstborn children in all the families, like it's not just the babies, but it's the elderly people as well. It's the middle-aged people as well. It's the young adults as well. There are parents everywhere who would be in agony. And so you think, well, yeah, this time though, he got the message. This time he lets them go. And he does. But do you remember what happened in Exodus 14 after Pharaoh lets them go? Like how long is it before they find themselves, the Israelites, standing on the shore shore of the Red Sea and all of a sudden look behind them and see what? Pharaoh's army coming right after them. Can you imagine? God killed the firstborn in every family in Egypt and still Pharaoh thinks 
Well, I'm going to fix this myself and sends an army out after these people after God has already killed his firstborn son. Like, when is this man going to get the message? And yet, that is, in fact, the human condition. And so, ten plagues doesn't touch our refusal to say to God, I want to go my own way. Now, what's interesting, too, is that Israel itself doesn't get it. Like you'd think if you were Israel, after all these plagues, and after watching what happens with Pharaoh's firstborn, and all of Egypt's firstborn, and then coming out of Egypt, and then going through the Red Sea, and watching the water close down on the army, and destroy them, you'd think that by then, Israel would really be cluing in. They're now going to serve God. How could they possibly not? But I want you to look at Exodus 13. Turn to Exodus 13. This is a passage that most of us, I think, have completely forgotten. And I must admit, I had not thought about this. Uh, When I was getting ready for this lesson, I read through this and I thought, man, I had forgotten about this. Exodus 13. This is fascinating. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. Now, when I think about this, I think about Samuel and Samuel being given over to the Lord. And it sounds like a special case. You read through 1 Samuel, and it just sounds like when Hannah gave over her son Samuel to the Lord, that she was given him a special gift. Well, this seems to be, if I'm reading this right, the way it's supposed to be for all of them. All the firstborn sons are to be given over to God. Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. And so you commemorate the Passover. One way is by giving your firstborn son back to God. Special, a special gift to God, your firstborn son. And yet, most of us, I think, probably didn't remember that that was the case. Why? Why do we not remember that that's the case? I think it's because Israel didn't do it all that often. It just wasn't part of their practice. They didn't listen to the Lord on this one. And so Samuel seems in our minds like a unique case. When Samuel wasn't a unique case at all, he was just supposed to be the routine. You're supposed to give your firstborn son back to God. And we can't even remember that they were supposed to do this. Why? Because Israel was not listening. You talk about you can hit them in the head and they still don't listen. They still don't take notice. How about if you kill all the firstborn sons of Egypt? How about if you take them through on dry land and let the water crush the army? How about if you lead them around in Israel for 40 years after they've sinned? You'd think that these people would have gotten it, but they tended not to. Turn to Amos chapter 2. I'll give you 10 or 12 minutes. Turn to Amos chapter 2. And listen to these words as God talks about Israel. This starts in verse uh, 6. 
For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. Just think about this. We're not talking about these other nations. We're talking about Israel. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed their fruit, abro- their fruit above and their roots below. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? And of course it's true. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape, the strong will not muster their strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground, the fleet-footed soldier will not, yet get, a, will not get away, and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. And what's happening here is that God's judgment is coming down, in this case, not on Pharaoh, not on the Egyptians, but specifically on Israel. And the reason is because of their lack of faithfulness. They refuse to listen to God and do what he says. And I just want to ask the question, are they any different then than Pharaoh? God said to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh refused. And Israel consistently refused to be what God wanted them to be. Do you know that if you go to Israel today, and some of us have been there. I haven't, but I can read. If you go to Israel today, what you find is that the nation is essentially secular. Israel is no different in that sense than any other land. Like the Zionist movement for all the Jews to go back to Palestine and and possess the promised land. It's a secular attempt. Like there's not some profound religious undergirding to this other than their history and their commonality as a people. When they keep the Passover, it's a ritual that they keep. And secularism has essentially taken over what was once God's people. And so God showed himself to Israel. God saved Israel. God brings the Jews out of Egypt through the waters. And in the end, and consistently throughout their history, Israel forgot God. Now, folks, God has saved us through Jesus Christ. And God has expectations regarding our faithfulness to him. But here's what scares me. 85% of the children who are raised in our families are going to leave the church and not come back. That's what statistics say. 85% of our children are going to leave the church and not come back. 
Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9 says this. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess. So that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear Israel and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And he goes on. And the point is, don't ever for a moment allow our attention to the Lord to be diverted. There cannot be anything that comes between our intentionality with our faith and what God wants us to be. Our sons, Robins and mine, were here for just a couple of days, you know, a while ago. Um, Or I should say they were here for the last week and a half. And we enjoyed them tremendously. It was fantastic. I'll tell you the best part of when I was with them. The best thing that happened, and I, and I love my children so much, it's just a, always a wonderful thing to be with them. But the best thing, besides just having the exceedingly brilliant, good-looking grandson here, was after a day of hunting, my boys and I came back to the hotel where we were staying, and we went into the room, and, and you know we hadn't had a productive day. We didn't get anything, and oh, I, I was beat. But I, I had made provisions earlier on, before we left, that we could have the Lord's Supper. And so we had grape juice and we had crackers and we were ready to have the Lord's Supper. But I have to admit, when I got back from hunting that day, I was exhausted. And I wasn't thinking at all about the Lord's Supper. So I came in and I, you know, I started taking off my hunting stuff and sitting on the end of the bed. And all of a sudden, Ryan went over and grabbed the grape juice and looked at Adam and I and said, it's time to have the Lord's Supper together. And we've had a great day and it's great to be together and now we get to share in the Lord's Supper together. Let's do this. I was so proud of him. Like it meant so much to me that he would do that. I was deeply moved as my son led us through the Lord's Supper together. And it didn't matter at that moment whether or not we'd gotten any deer. And it it didn't matter at that point whether my son was successful in business. And I didn't care what kind of car he drove, what kind of house he had. I didn't care what kind of degrees he might have. I didn't care about whether or not anybody esteemed him. I didn't care about whether or not he was good-looking or smart or anything else. All these things didn't mean much. Paul, when he talks about those things in his own life, says, I count them all, and he uses a Greek word, skubalon, which means rubbish. I count them all rubbish. They don't matter. What matters is one turns his heart to the Lord 
and is committed completely to him. I watch young parents sometimes try and give everything they can to their children. And it's so natural. I did the same thing. And I wanted the best for my kids. I still do. You know, my my boys are in their 20s. Megan's 21. I'm still trying to give them the best I can as their parent. But the best thing I can do is that when God says something to me like, I need you to do this. I need to answer. And I need to not be like a Pharaoh or like an Israel or like even sometimes the church. When God says, I need this. And we say, I'm too busy. It's not a, no, I refuse to do your will, God. It's more like, I'm too tired. I'm too busy. There are other things on my plate. And what God wants from us is for to put him as our, our, our highest priority. He wants us to acknowledge him as Lord first more than anything else. And he doesn't really care about your church attendance. He doesn't really care about how much you contribute. He doesn't care very much about your service. God can make children of Abraham out of rocks if he wants What he wants is your heart. He wants your devotion. He wants your commitment. He wants you to love him first. He wants you when he calls for you to listen and to answer and to say, yes, God. And if we're going to make the kind of changes in our world and even in our own families that ultimately allow us to avoid the kind of crises that they experienced in Vancouver, it's not going to be because somebody poured a lot of money down into some social program. It's going to be because because individual families decided that they were going to devote themselves completely to what God wants in their lives. And that 85% that we're worried about, and we should be, That's not written anywhere that it has to be that way. It's just a statistic. Things can be so much different if God's people simply say, I will do differently and honor him. We need to do that, church. What does God call you to? What is he saying to you? Are you listening? Are you committed to His will first in your life? It makes all the difference. Let's pray. Lord God, we have young families here today who I know want more than anything for their children to join them in their faith. We we have families that are not so young that want their children to join them in their faith. And God, we need your help with that. But I'm convinced, Lord, that so much of that just starts with us listening. 
Help us to listen. Help us to be obedient. Help us when we hear your voice to not harden our hearts. Father, help us to serve and acknowledge you as Lord, to make you our, our only commitment. We're totally committed to you. Bless us in, in this of all tasks. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.